Hey, welcome to the Therapy Thoughts Podcast. This is Tiffany Rowe. I'm a licensed clinical mental health counselor and psychology teacher. I own Mindful Counseling in Orem, Utah, and I'm on a mission to break down mental health stigma. Therapy Thoughts is a podcast all about helping you love yourself and make peace with your mind, body, and food. I'll share some education, tips, interviews, and tools from my clinical experience so you can improve your mental health. Stay tuned as we change the mental health game and talk all about therapy. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to episode 21 of the Therapy Thoughts podcast. And my friends, this episode is the pinnacle of my career because I got to sit down and talk with Evelyn Triboli, the one and only, the legend, and ultimate dream come true interview and mentor of mine. She's the co-author of Intuitive Eating, a revolutionary program that works. That book changed my life, y'all. In 2006, when I started recovery from my eating disorders, I was introduced to this book and never went on a diet again. And it completely taught me how to heal my relationship with food. Evelyn is super cool. And actually, we had an interview before this interview But sadly, the audio didn't save. And so she was humble and gracious enough to sit with me a second time and to dive into all things intuitive eating. She's a blast. She's hilarious. She's so insightful and brilliant. Sit down, kick back, relax, and enjoy this amazing interview and everything you'll learn from Evelyn Triboli herself. We are recording. We're live. Yay! Evelyn Triboli in the house, y'all. Yay! Oh, no! Oh, here you are! This is so funny. I had another screen come on. Oh, no! Being possessed again. We're all good. We're good. We're good. This is round two. Evelyn and I actually already did an hour-long podcast, and I really blew it and messed up the audio, so she is showing us she's walking the walk of humility and supporting other clinicians by doing this again so thank you from the bottom of my heart you are so welcome and come on uh, technology happens to everybody so give yourself a break (laughs) self-compassion that's right and by the way on my screen it says you're recording this so that's a a really good sign that we we're all coming together here today sound and all so yay success Um, I've had so much fun getting to know you over the last couple weeks and seeing your presence on social media, like you, you're killing it. I tell you, I'm having so much fun. I didn't know that my, for lack of better words, my people are there. It's, I've had such a warm reception. It's just been, it's, in fact, I'll tell you, you know what got me onto Instagram? I had several people pushing me, like, you gotta go there, you gotta go there. But then I did this interview with Glamour Magazine, they just did a, um, a feature on intuitive eating that I'm so excited about in their January issue, and they go, don't you know it's a big thing? Don't you know it's a phenomenon? I mean, they're telling me, I'm thinking, what? <laughs> and that's when they told me on Instagram, it's it's just like gangbusters, and I thought, I gotta check this out, and that's how I met you, so 
Very so cool. So cool. Yeah. There's a whole army of anti-diet people and you're the leader. It gives me so much hope. You have no idea because this is what we need. This is what we need. And I think more importantly, it gives all those who are struggling with diet culture hope. When they see people in the trenches and they have turned their lives around, I'll tell you what really gets me. I keep getting um, messages from people like, you changed my life. I've never met them, but they read Intuitive Eating. And the, and the book might have opened the door for them, but they had the courage. And so mm-hmm. I think it's even more powerful when you hear it from someone else's lived experience. You know, mm-hmm. it's just... Oh, I never get tired of these kinds of stories, you know. How did you discover this? Like, how did you come up? Did you come up with the concept, or did you just write the book? No, we came up with it. I'll tell you, you know, there's a really interesting backstory to this. You know, I used to be a regular on Good Morning America. I was their nutritionist, and one day, a guest didn't show up. There's a technical glitch, and they said, hey, can you do another segment? We have two minutes. We're live. I go, okay. <laughs> and so... <laughs> I was brainstorming the ideas with the anchor, and I came up with this idea of primal hunger because I was seeing it so much in my practice that when people get so hungry, they've gone too long without eating, they don't care. It's like, I'm going to kill you if I can't eat. Yeah. And we talked about that phenomenon, and that was a real popular segment. I got some calls from publishers saying, you have a book in you. I said, as a matter of fact, I do. So um, the short version is Elise and I got together to do this. We were both we worked independently, both had our private practices, and we were so frustrated. They had no desire to get into any kind of, quote, weight management. And we did beautiful food plans and meal plans, and, and you know what? It wasn't working. And mm-hmm. to see the suffering over and over and over again. And so what we did is a deep dive. We used our own clinical experience working with people that also looked at the research to really pull out what are the characteristics to become, you know, an intuitive eater? And actually, the book at the time that was really popular was called Backlash. I believe that was by um, Susan Faludi, and it talked about the the patriarchy and the disempowerment of women. I was thinking, well, this should be a diet backlash book, and mm-hmm. that was the original post title. And, and the publisher said, mm, we could use a better title. And so Elise and I were so passionate about this stuff, like back and forth, and all of a sudden, intuitive eaters like, ooh, the waves part is like. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And the thing that is so cool is that it has stood the, the, the uh, test of research time. There are now over 90 studies on our work. And I had a conversation with Tracy Tilka. She's one of my researcher heroes. She's the one that put intuitive eating on the research map because she created an intuitive eating assessment scale. And because of that, other researchers can use this and see, you know, can, you, can we define what an intuitive eater is and so what? And it's like, yes, and, and the research is just so exciting. So now we're getting validation in the research world. We're seeing people's lives change. We're now seeing our community of, of dietitians and health professionals embrace it. Because I have to tell you, I was a little scared when we published the book. I wasn't scared for myself, but I thought it would be controversial. I thought mm-hmm. that, you know, they should be throwing french fries at me or something like that. But I knew wow. the research was good, and I knew uh, our experience was sound. And so now to see so many new generations of health professionals coming up and embracing this, it's like, yes you know yes oh, it's gotta be so gratifying i mean it's it's life-changing well it's life-changing and you know the, the thing that makes me so sad in, in terms of the suffering that if someone is on this they have this idea that they have to change their body they have to eat a certain way it really distracts them from their life's purpose and i will yes. never forget reading victor frankl's book about 10 years ago i was a newcomer even though he's been long gone and for those of you not familiar with Victor Frankl, he wrote a, a classic book called 
you know, man's search for meaning, in which basically, what's what's the point? And he begins the book by saying, hey, reader, the only reason I'm telling you about my awful times in the concentration camps, times four, is because it reinforces the whole point I'm going to tell you about. And he's a psychiatrist. His manuscript got confiscated when he was in the concentration camp. And what he saw is what made the difference to people who went on to live versus those that gave up. And it was, da-da-da-da-da finding your purpose in life. And of course, I'm reading this through the lens of all the work I do, and I go, oh my God, when people are dieting or when they're stuck in the throes of an eating disorder, they are being distracted, and that's an understatement from their life's purpose. I just got a, yes, and I just got a DM from someone on Instagram, this artist. Oh my God, I happen to follow this artist, and I think her watercolors are beautiful, and she goes, your book changed my life. It robbed me of my art, and I'm back into my Mm. art again. It's like, I get goosebumps right now do you know whatever it happens to be whether it's raising a family or discovering I don't know something or saving the world but there's so much more to life and I've had women women after women well men too in my office crying saying I wish to God somebody would have told me about this I can't believe all the time money and relationship suffering because when you are in the throes of dieting or an eating disorder it's like when you're talking to somebody on a cell phone and you can tell they're checking email or doing something else they're they're in the conversation, but they're not all there. And that's what ends up happening. Right. You know? And so when you see all these things changing, it's just it's so it's so beautiful. I never get tired of it. I I had a, a I'll never forget this a client, one of my first readers of intuitive eating that I took on as a client. I didn't used to do phone sessions and now I do. We were in about year two of this process, and she goes, you know, Evelyn, I gotta tell you, when I was reading your book, I thought your your case studies were a little too um, a little too happy ending-ish, you know, everything just worked out fine, and she goes, now I look at my life, I can't believe how much I've I've changed, and so what happens is, it's kind of like cross-training for your whole life, because as you start to connect with, what am I feeling, what do I need, those are two basic questions, it's a reason someone might start dieting, they use it dieting as as a coping tool, or they might start overeating as a coping tool, but they're missing out on, what am I feeling, what do I need, what do I need, and they start figuring these kinds of things out, and they blossom, it's just... Ah, it's incredible. You're hitting all these huge, deep things. It's a distraction from your purpose, and it's this coping mechanism, and... Uh, well, and, and let's stop right there because I think that's really important because on the one hand, I'm so excited to see all these health professionals rallying against diet culture, but what I've seen happen is people now feel guilty because they want to lose weight. They want to be on one more diet, and I say to them, you know what? It's like fish and water. It's like water to fish. It's all around us. When you keep getting this message from your doctor and from everywhere you go, it's understandable. Yes. You bite book you know so we have to have it's important that we have compassion and meet people where they're at they're not stupid in fact the first time anyone goes on a diet oh my god it's so easy it's so seductive it's like what is everyone complaining about you know boom weight melts off like a first love it's like let's yeah. do it again, you know <laughs> totally and the weight comes back and you try and diet again and after time your body gets so smart it's like Mm-mm-mm. I'm on to you girlfriend we are shutting down this metabolism we are slowing down these hormones and enzymes and we're going to cause you to think more about food because we need to eat we need to survive and every time you diet it's to me it's like a it's like a traumatic assault on the body both biologically and psychologically and the more that you've dieted what ends up happening is if you ever have a time where you just go too long without eating not on purpose but your body goes oh my god she's doing it again she's doing it again and it, and it becomes a, a very stressful event but yeah. all this is workable one of my favorite words it's workable it's all workable no matter where somebody is in their journey you know 
I love that. Starting with self-compassion. What's what's yeah. like a roadmap, whether clinicians are listening or, you know, people who want to start intuitive eating, they're stuck in it. They want to keep dieting. This idea yeah. sounds kind of cool, but they definitely still want to lose weight. You know, how do we help them navigate that in an ethical, compassionate way? Oh, I love that word ethical. It's one of my favorite. I have a lot of favorite words, by the way. <laughs> I'm taking notes. <laughs> yeah, I, I, should, I should be taking notes on myself. Um, but the <laughs> is so important. And so one of the things I like to do is I like to ask, can you put, I hear loud and clear, you don't like your body. I hear loud and clear, do you want to lose weight? Can we put that on the back burner? Mm-hmm. Can we make that your inactive screen on your computer? We can mm-hmm. have all these programs open, but only one active screen because I can help you. But the thing I think that's really the hardest part, it's like a leap of faith for a lot of people. It's like, what? You mean I can eat whatever I want? It's like, mm-hmm. And they don't, they don't believe you. And the best description I have for this, you know, I'm kind of an, I am an adventure seeker. I just am. I love to do fun stuff, and I get scared sometimes, but I have fun in the fear. <laughs> so anyway, I like to, I like to go white water rafting, and I went white white water rafting with my son, class four rapids, on a kayak. Now, when you're on a kayak, you are the master of your domain, and so you got to pay attention to what the leader says. And one of the instru- it was my first time kayaking on a river, and they said when you come across a big ginormous boulder, here's what you do. You lean into it. And I have to tell you, that is the last thing I want to do when you're going a million miles an hour and you have this big old boulder coming. I don't want to lean into it. And so you trust your guide. And so I'm, I, I actually have a picture of the moment it happened. And my eyes are closed and I'm leaning in. And I'll be damned. You lean in and I guess the transfer of weight, you, you don't hit the boulder. And then with repetition, you start to trust the process. So sometimes you start trusting maybe your guide. That could be your healthcare practitioner. It could be the research that's coming out. It could be your best friend that discovered this intuitive eating. You just don't believe it to be true for yourself. And so it's this trust factor that's often really missing. And so looking at that in terms of what support do you need? Mm -hmm. Can we take this leap of faith? Can we do a baby step? Can Mm -hmm. we do just a little baby step? Because in every step there there can be progress and there can be learning and the thing i love to stress about this is intuitive eating is a journey of discovery it is not pass and fail it is not a diet and sometimes people with a diet mentality unconsciously turn it into a a, a diet this is not the eat when you're hungry stop when you're full diet it's like oh my god i blew it because i ate when i wasn't it's like no what did you discover yes okay so what what happened did you end up having the same amount of dinner you normally do, or were you less hungry? You know, so it's really, it's fascinating. And one of the things I love to do as a point of exercise, I have people um, noticing when their body's working. Like when you get sleepy, to fall asleep, your body's working. Oh, you got too hungry because you went really long time without, you know, eating? Your body's working. So looking at that, we have so much fear-mongering in our culture right now, it drives me nuts. It's like life yes. can be scary enough. We don't need to be adding all these horror and scare messages to the process of eating, eating is supposed to be pleasurable, joyful, you know. And I'll tell you, you want to see pleasure and joy. I, uh, I, I have a new little hobby. I love watching babies eat. It's probably because my daughter just had a baby. The baby's actually oh. now oh. And so she sends me all these pictures, and she does baby-led weaning, which is basically you serve the baby whole foods cut up that's age-appropriate. And, oh, my God, they get the food in their eyes, and they get it just everywhere. Half the time it's not in their mouth. Eventually it's in their mouth. <laughs> it's so grateful. They're full of a mess. They're rah, rah, rah. <laughs> but what you see over and over again is, oh, my God, they know how to do this. We have yeah. to trust. 
you know? But what happens sometimes with some of the parents I work with, they don't trust their own bodies, and then they project that fear off to their kids or onto their onto their babies. So sometimes we need to work that stuff out first, you know, in order to work through this process. And I, I was thinking about, it's funny, I think all the time. <laughs> I may I should say I reflect a lot. I do like to reflect a lot. And I was thinking about when babies are learning how to walk, toddlers are learning how to walk, so many things happen. First of all, as parents, we trust that it will happen. We just know it will, we don't even question, oh, they can't walk, you know? And then yeah. when they start stumbling and they walk around like little like little uh, circus clowns, it's, it's the most delightful thing. We don't yell at them because they fell down. We expect it. We expect, we expect the stumble. We expect them to need to hold on a little bit and to feel a little um, unstable. Mm-hmm. And intuitive eating is a lot like that. Mm-hmm. And so that's a nice way of, of looking at that. And the, the thing I see over and over and over again with a lot of people is they haven't had the experience of trusting their body. They didn't grow up with it. They haven't cultivated. Or they're so left brain in terms of procedures and following the rules. And even our education system is based on this. It's just tell me what to do and I'll do it. But when you start intuitive eating and I say, listen, they're like, what? How can I listen perfectly? It's like there's no such thing as perfect. So it's really daunting. So um, I like to do a lot of ex- exercises around this just to help people realize we have this ability. And part of it is that we have to get out of the way. We have to get out of the way. That, that trust component. Yeah. I mean, trusting your own judgment, trusting your body, building that. I mean, what's, what's, what's some ways that people can even start to wrestle with that? How do they build that? First of all, you have to look for it. You have to look when you're when something is going well. In fact, I've got a client right now. I love her. She, actually, I love my clients. She's a young adult who's a real negative thinker. And I've started having her do, where uh, uh, she lists her accomplishments in her journal. And now we start every session with all the things that are going right. But in the mm-hmm. beginning, everything was all about what was going wrong, mm-hmm. you know? And so what happens for a lot of people I notice is even when they honor hunger for the first time, that part's exciting, but then they do it again and again. It's like, and so what? It's like, oh, my God, we need to be excited for the mundane, the ordinary. You know, it's not always um, exciting and noticing what happens or even realizing that, oh, you didn't eat enough at breakfast and you got hungry two hours later. That does not mean that you blew it. It means, oh, wonderful. You paid attention. You noticed your body was still hungry. Oh, and you were annoyed. Yeah, that's normal. That's human. Yeah. <laughs> it's not rainbows and, and unicorns and happy dances. It can be fun <laughs> sometimes, you know? <laughs> totally. Yeah. As you're talking about this, like celebrating wins and building this trust, I'm like, we have this huge wave of diet culture and wellness culture, <sighs> like hijacking our yeah. trust. What do we do about that? How do we take it, it, it on? It drives me nuts. I'll tell you how we take it on. Once, one, one, actually, I really believe we can change the world one conversation at a time. I really, really believe that. So part of what this is, basically, how can we call this out in a way that, that people know? You know, I'll give you an example. I did a post yesterday on Instagram about, you know, if any health coach or health professional is offering intuitive eating for the purpose of weight loss, run away fast. And someone, run. Uh, Run, yeah, fast, do it, because that's not what intuitive eating is. And so this one guy uh, hyped in, he goes, you know, I, I disagree with you. And then he goes on to say, but the world I live in is bodybuilding that's full of eating disorders and, and muscle dysmorphia. You know, you're giving me something to think about. So, you know what I mean? Just having that kind of conversation is, is, is a way to do this or calling something out as, as diet culture. And I'll, I'll give you a really good example of this. 
you know, a diet is a diet is a diet. So if a doctor is recommending a diet, guess what? That's diet culture. It's still not going to work. There has not been a study to date to show that dieting works or that it's um, sustainable or that it actually makes makes a difference. It actually causes harm. And we've had a body of research since at least – God, the Ansel Keys study, that's, that was in the World War II, you know, where they put men on a semi-starvation diet and watched what happened. And I will tell you, I learned about that study in grad school, and what blew my mind wasn't the malnutrition and their hair falling out or the, metab- or the metabolism, you know, got cut down by 50%. It's what happened to their minds. Mm. They started obsessing about food and collecting recipes and cookbooks. And this is before we had, you know, celebrity chefs, you know, running around saying, bam, or whatever they say these days on, you know, cooking shows or, or whatnot, and so this is like the really first uh, profound study, landmark study, showing when you restrict someone's eating, it affects mind and body, and these guys were super healthy to begin with. They were healthy medically and healthy uh, psychologically, and I'll tell you, I love talking about the study when I give talks to uh, universities, because mm-hmm. I'll say, these men were college age, and they lost interest in sex, mm-hmm. and as soon as they say that, they go, Oh no, they know something is wrong. <laughs> something happened to the body with that kind of stuff, you know? So, and then since then, there have been tons and tons of research to show that diets fail you, it slows down your metabolism, and it also leads to more weight regain beyond what you already lost. And if, and if, Diets were held this, to the same standard as medication for, for uh, treating uh, or managing or curing illness. There's no way this would even be approved. And mm. so now when you have a doctor saying, well, you know, I need, you need to lose weight or here go on this diet, it doesn't change what the research is. The research is really profound. So we need to flip it and we need to say, show me the data. Show me where there's been an intervention data where this was sustainable for five years or longer. People can do anything for a year. You know, short term, yeah, that, that can happen. Absolutely. But show me a, a human study, not an animal study, not a test tube study, you know? And so it just breaks my heart. And people don't talk about the shame they experience with all of this. They believe that they're a failure, that there's something wrong with them. They have all this weight cycling that goes on, and, and, and there's a lot, of, a lot of shame that goes on. And so eventually they get to the point where even when they, when they continue on this dieting uh, journey, I mean, I like to call it a journey. It's a road to hell. Yeah. Uh, it really is. It, it doesn't work anymore. It, the weight doesn't even come off like it used to, and the obsessionality gets even higher. And mm. for a lot of people, that's when binge eating starts to um, take place also. It's a very – every study that I've seen that has looked at dieting and binge eating, direct, direct, direct correlation there. That's real, That's a gateway. That's a gateway for overeating because the body is trying to survive. Your little cells are going, save us, save us. You know, so there's pictures going up of chocolate. And co- I, I haven't met anyone yet who says, you know, Evelyn, I want to see you because I'm a broccoli holic. <laughs> you know, it's, it's <laughs> the carbs, the pasta, or quantities of other foods because it, I just say, you know, it's, it's your body trying to survive. And then where this really gets complex is there's been some research showing that dieters are even more. Um, vulnerable to emotional eating, using food to cope with feelings. Mm. And I think it's because we're neuro- neurologically wired to survive. We're, mm. we're thinking more about food, and we do get a little nice dopamine hit. It feels good to eat. It's pleasurable. And so when life is out of balance, emotions are not managed, it, it gets really easy to turn to food. And so you combine that with dieting, and it's a royal mess. And don't people use that pleasure response in our brain to try to say that food or sugar is addictive and that's why yeah that drives me nuts <laughs> in fact 
I'm getting hot. I gotta take off my jacket. You can't take this kind of hot in here. We're here I'm, for it, Evelyn. We want. Yeah. We're getting worked up. Okay. <laughs> okay, so I'll tell you what drives me nuts about the so-called food addiction theory, and that's really what we should call it. And and to me, it's not ethical to talk about food addiction as a fact when the research does not support it. Yeah. So I want to. I actually, I will explain a lot of this to my clients as well. You know, when the research really took off, was when a scientist out of Princeton took a group of rats and got them. I'm doing air quotes here. Addicted to sugar, where they. They gave them access to sugar and they could stop eating. It's like, oh my God, these rats are addicted to sugar. See, it's it's a problem. And that made headline news around the world. But there's an important detail of the study that a lot of people don't talk about and don't know about. And that is there was a control group of rats. Guess what? They were given access to sugar and they're like, eh, no thanks. Eh, eh. And it's like, what? That to me is the more interesting part. What's the difference? Well, the difference is the group of rats that overate the sugar they were starved for a period of time. I don't remember the details of how many hours or day. I think it was a 12 hours or 24 hour cycle. So to me, what this really showed is a mechanism that yeah, when you when you mess with the body, when you mess with biology, food becomes more rewarding. I think that's a more accurate way to interpret that. So, but what that did is because that came out of Princeton, other scientists were like, oh, this is fascinating. Let's take a look at this. And as brain imaging studies started to become popular, they put you know put some people in, into some brain scans and say, oh, yep, yeah, you're addicted to food. Your cocaine, your Fourier region, and your brain mm-hmm. lit up. You know. And it's like, wait, 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 there is more to this than that because when we look at the pleasure cycle or the pleasure, how we are wired neurobiologically, you know, things that feel good often are because we need them for our survival, like sex, procreate, and, and eating. And we're actually, that's supposed to happen that way. We're supposed to get a dopamine effect. That's not, that's not, that's not wrong. And then relatedly, there have been studies like where they take um, moms put them in a brain imaging scan and give them a picture of their smiling babies. And guess what? That same center in the brain lights up and no one at all is suggesting, "Uh uh-oh, those moms are addicted to their babies. Baby addiction. (laughs) You know? Um, And there's been other research like that. And the study that really got me thinking on all of this brain imaging stuff was a study done on music where they found a group of people who respond physiological to physiologically to music. They get goosebumps or goosies, or it's also known as furls, which rhymes with curls, F-U-R-L-S. And so what they did, and I, actually I get those. I thought, oh, my God, they're talking about me. And so <laughs> I could have been in that study. And what they did is they did two parts. They exposed them to music. They looked at the brain, uh, what was going on in their brain, and they also measured dopamine. And what they found is that merely anticipating music lit up the cocaine euphoria region in the brain. And then upon listening to that music, dopamine levels went up. And once again, nowhere did they even suggest that that you can be addicted to music, you know? So we have to really take a look at all of this stuff. And most of the studies that have been done on humans, on brain scans and, and food addiction have not controlled for a very important thing, and that's dieting or hunger. Because mm. if you diet, your brain is now more wired to be food-seeking. You're going to be looking at food and have a more rewarding effect just because of that. And so as a matter of practice now, when I'm at scientific conferences, and, so, and if a scientist is presenting on a brain imaging scan study and suggesting food addiction, I go up to the microphone, I ask one question. Did you control for dieting? And I love watching the look on the face. It's like, no. <laughs> Because it's a huge confounder, they know that. So it basically makes the study uh, irrelevant. Wow. Now there was a one particular study that really shows um, some cool stuff on this by Eric Stice out of Oregon. He looked at girls, teenage girls who were dieting, and put them in brain scans, and then looked at girls who were not dieting. And yep, that's what they found. The ones who were dieting 
had more of a rewarding effect or, or more of a, a food-seeking thing. So I think what we need to look at is that when you diet, our brain and our body and our mind undergoes a cascade of effects that makes food more rewarding or more food-seeking, and it makes sense from a survival standpoint. It doesn't make it food addiction. And where I think this has gotten really nutso, uh, that's, not, that's not a really good professional term, but... <laughs> There's um, something called the, the Yale Food Addiction Scale that was published in 2009. And when I was reading the study, they what they were trying to do is to come up with a, a food addiction measurement using the addiction criteria from the DSM-4 and, and put together a, a questionnaire. And then they gave this questionnaire to their Yale uh, population and they found food addiction. And I'm thinking... How in the hell do you get a statistical level of food addiction in a privileged Ivy League setting? Mm. And I, it really puzzled me. It bothered me. And then I started thinking, wait a minute. If you think at that time, at least half the people were dieting, and if dieting is the gateway to food becoming more rewarding, now that might make some sense. And then a few years later, I finally got a hold of the actual um, questionnaire itself, and I read the questions. I go, oh, my gosh, these questions are really asking about the consequences of dieting. Do you feel guilty if you eat too much food? Do you have uh, regret? Do you want to try and cut down on what you're eating? So I think that's why they're getting statistical significance. They're actually capturing something, but I think they're calling it the wrong thing. And it's been replicated in many countries and many languages, but what it does, it creates more fear-mongering. Yes. Because now someone will go, oh, I'm addicted to that food or that group of foods. I can't eat it. And so now we create a self-fulfilling prophecy where I can't eat it, can't have it, won't have it. And something happens, an event, an emotion, and you finally break down and have it. And because you think you'll never, ever have it again, it's extra exciting and you can't stop. And it's not because you're addicted. It's because you set it up that way, you know. So that's the problem. But, but then, you know, for your listeners out there, because yeah, we have to meet people where they're at. Someone might really believe they're addicted to food, you know. And so we have to, I, what I like to do is say, okay, I'm going to meet you where I can't make you do something you don't want to do. But I'd like to show you there's a possibility that that's not true for you. Mm-hmm. And so what ends up happening as their life starts to get in balance, as they start nourishing their body, eventually, I, I've had this happen over and over again. I'll see someone's food journal and, and they're eating candy or cake and I'll say, why, why did you only have one piece of cake? And they start getting all defensive. I go, no, 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 no. Why didn't you eat the whole cake if you're addicted? So it starts raising some doubt and we start dismantling that belief system, you know? So that piece by piece, they gather the evidence through their yes. experimentation. Exactly. You know, that's a really good point. So this is direct experience, and that's one of the hallmarks of intuitive eating. It's the direct experience of your body. It's one of the things that we look at. It's called interceptive awareness, and I love this. Interceptive awareness is our ability to perceive physical sensations that arise within the body. Mm. Now, that might sound like a bunch of scientific gobbledygook, but i got to tell you, it's our superpower as a human being mm. because we know if we have a full bladder. Well, thank God we know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> We know if we feel physically sleepy, but every emotion has a physical sensation attached to that. So if we start doing some deep listening to our body, it's a way that we actually get to figure out our our psychological and biological needs. Mm. You know, it's beautiful. But if you hate your body, you're dissatisfied with your body, you don't trust your body, there's a high chance you're not even listening to it or think there's anything relevant about it. But it's, it's, it's like a, a, super, a super skill. It's the coolest, coolest thing because it helps people to get in touch with what, the, what their needs really are. It's more than just hunger and fullness. I, I love working with people with emotions in terms of, well, 
where, where, how's that feel physically? And they're like, what? Because as you know, I mean, this is your whole area, the language of emotion. We're not raised or taught very well in our culture about that. But then the physical aspect of emotion, most people aren't taught that either. Well, so I have people start pointing. It's like, well, where do you feel that? You know, often it's the chest or the yes. abdomen. And so it's why there's all this confusion. When someone says they're confused about eating um, or what's going on, well, yeah, if you're experiencing anxiety in the gut, that's a real sensation, But and, and then you're not trusting hunger and fullness. And so we have to start piece by piece um, helping to figure it out. So sometimes in the beginning, we're doing, depending on where a person's at on this journey, we might be doing, doing nourishment as self-care, mm. meaning they're so stressed out, or maybe, they, uh, maybe they've had trauma or something, they really have a hard time hearing hunger and fullness or responding in a timely manner. So maybe in the beginning, we set up some self-care nourishment, that's what I call it. And so I really apply this model a lot when uh, working with patients with eating disorders. Yeah. And so yeah. the way I look at this, an eating disorder, it's kind of like when you have a broken uh, bone. When you have a broken bone, you're going to need a cast to support the healing. Then you can have physical therapy and all these other things. But the goal is not to put the cast on for the rest of your life. It's structure to support the healing. So in the beginning phases of recovery in an eating disorder, many, many, many people will need some kind of nourishment plan, some kind of meal plan of sorts. And I've had patients be very surprised about that. They'll say, Evelyn, that's not intuitive eating. And I'll politely talk about, talk about how they have kind of a broken hunger, hunger satiety meter right now. Mm-hmm. It's like a broken, a broken arm. I mean, it's not a criticism. It's just not working right now. And it wouldn't be ethical for me if I had you uh, wait till you were hungry to eat and stop when you're full. If your anxiety level is really high, you're stressed out about eating. If you ate only according to hunger and fullness, it wouldn't be enough. And that's true in other medical situations. Like if someone has cancer and they're getting chemotherapy, we don't say, oh, yeah, just go starve. You know, we, we need to get involved but even with this kind of structure with the plan i still have people start listening to their bodies mm-hmm. and i will start maybe by saying you know so on the one hand we're doing this this little meal plan together we plan it out together and um i'll say but you know and usually where i start someone it's not where they need to be it's it's improvement over where they are but they still have a long way to go so maybe it's we're increasing their eating just a, a bit um, but then I'll say, you know, I would much rather have your body inform me of the process. Mm. Your body needs more nourishment. I understand this is stressful, but it's improvement. It's not enough, but it's improvement, and that's cool. But let's have you listen to signs of hunger so we can have your body inform us when and how much to add the next time that we meet because we need to still keep adding more nourishment so you can be in recovery. And so what I tell them is as you're listening for this, I'm not even asking you to act on it. I'm asking you to commit on the meal plan that we talk about for the week. But I want you to listen to where you're feeling it. And then we have conversations. What's hunger feel like in your body? Mm. And it's amazing to me the disconnect there. Um, sometimes people have never really experienced it or they have an idea of what it should be. Or it's a very, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Distorted mm-hmm. idea. Oh, it's when I'm ready to pass out. Okay, okay, well, that's hunger, but that's extreme hunger. That's the, you're going to pass out hunger. Yeah. What's, 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 uh, what are some other less severe signs of, of, of that in terms of maybe do you notice a change in your mood? How about your ability to focus and concentrate? Maybe a sudden sleepiness or maybe suddenly thinking more about food. And that's what a lot of patients with eating disorders don't realize that many times the, the obsessive thoughts around food is a direct consequence of malnutrition. Mm-hmm. It's your mind just trying to get your attention to eat. So that's why it's like 
extra delicious foods. And then it scares someone because they're actually biologically hungry. And even though they're not eating or not eating enough, they have the fear that once they start, they're not going to stop. And that's the hunger, the, the true primal hunger they're experiencing, which is understandable, you know. And so we start this healing journey together. And it's... It's an awesome process. It's it's to be a witness to the transformation that happens. Well, as you know, it's just it's beautiful. You've you said this last time we talked, and you're 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 proving your point that people are the expert of their own body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you don't have this all or nothing rigid take because it's not a diet. And I mean, just what you're saying exactly exact is a, exactly a testimony to that. Yeah, you know, as you're saying this, it reminds me of an example of a, of, a, of a patient I worked with many years ago. Um, you know, sometimes I have my patients text me, I have a separate text number, so it's never intrusive, I have good boundaries, blah, blah, blah. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just had to say that, your PSA for boundaries, boundaries are important. So anyway, she, she texted me how, and she was, in this case, she had a, a meal plan, and she decided to say, effort <laughs> to the snack she's supposed to have at night and the text came in I was asleep when it came in at 2 a.m. in the morning and she goes I was so pissed off I woke up at 2 a.m. because I was starving I knew my body was telling me I needed to eat so I surrendered I said okay and do you know I went and sat down to eat I didn't have a pre-ordained idea of limiting and it ended up being the exact amount of food as the snack would have been. And, and, and then in all caps, my body is working. So here she tried to restrict, but in her case, because she was getting so much healthier, her body's like, uh-uh, we're not having this girlfriend. We're going to wake you up. you got to feed us. you got to feed me right now. And so it was a really triumphant moment, you know, in looking at these things. So it gets confusing, however, when you have a lot of rules around eating, when you have a lot of fears around eating, when you have a belief system around eating or what you think your body should look like. Mm-hmm. And that's where it gets so complex. And that's it takes a team, a therapist, a dietitian, a physician who specializes in eating disorders. It's not... It sounds like such a simple process of just eat it, and it's so much more complex than that. And we have to respect it. We have to. One of the things I do, I tell my patients, I respect the fear. And fear has no logic once that comes up really high. And so, what I need to know, usually when I'm asking them to, to make some kind of change with their eating and if they're willing, then on a scale of one to 10, how scary is this mm. idea? And if they say it's an eight, like, ooh, what do you need in order for it to be a six? Or what do you need in order for it to be a four? Or what do you need uh, to work through this this fear? So we respect it, and we understand fear is part of the process, but we can't let it hijack your brain. Your eating disorder hijacks your brain. And so um, there are a lot of ways to, to work with that. So yeah. Oh, I love that suggestion. I'm going to use that in my practice. I've never taken that approach. That's brilliant. Oh, cool. Thank you. Thank keep, you. Keep it coming. I love it. <laughs> insights for practice have come when I have felt really when I say stuck with the patient I don't mean stuck as in an act but where someone is so stuck and I need to do something different but I don't know what that thing is yet you know and it's being in that precise moment together that something emerges it's, it's kind of a deep listening on on my part you know oh in fact I have an idea sorry I didn't mean to scare you <laughs> I'm excited if you want to do this, it's an exercise I love. It's actually in the workbook, but I often do this in a first session. So if it takes a pen and a paper. I don't even know if you have it because I'm pulling this on you at the last minute. It's an exercise I would have you do. 
Okay, yay! Okay. So, yeah, so when I have someone do it, I have them kind of get relaxed. So get relaxed to the degree that you can. And I realize that you're on because you're, like, doing this interview thing. This is a and dream so, come true. Give me all you got. And then, and then actually what I would do, and I need to do this, I need to ask for your permission. Is this something that you'd like to do? I have an exercise to help show you the process of intuitive eating. It involves writing on a piece of paper. Hell yeah. Okay. Oh, I love that. I love that. You know, it cracks me up when people say, yeah, and I didn't describe what it is. I'll say, thank you so much for your trust, but I want to make sure you're okay with this, you know? We, I'm so respectful of people's boundaries. So thank you for that. Hell yeah. So hell yeah, let's go. Okay. So are you right-handed or left-handed? Right. Great. So anyone who's following along with this, they're getting a piece of paper and pen. So put your pen in your dominant hand, and what I'd like you to do right now is to write your signature as if it was a legal document that someone had to read. So just take your time and write your name, your full name. Okay. So now, how was that for you? Just like easy. Was that okay? Yeah. Uh-oh, we're breaking up. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, good. Now I can hear just fine. Okay. So now what I'd like you to do is take your pen and put it in your other hand. Your left hand, for most people, it will be their left hand. I have moved and my like pen. Yeah, I'd like you to write your name legibly, as if it's a legal document, and I want you to take all the time in the world. There's no rush here. You know, it's, it, I have to tell you, it's interesting just watching you do this. And with the podcast, I'm not going to be able to see, but I, I love watching the expression on your face doing both exercises. So what was it like for you, uh, writing with your right hand versus your left hand? My right hand, I didn't think about it. And my left, I wanted to do it as fast. When you said take your time, I was resistant to that. Okay. And I was trying to do it the same, and it was, it didn't make sense, and it was difficult, and it didn't connect. They look quite different. Okay, and did you? And I'm curious about your thoughts in the process. Did you find yourself getting uh, judgmental, or what kind of thoughts were you having with your left hand versus your right? Yeah, with my non-dominant hand, I was like, "Oh, I, I did this wrong, and why am I trying to rush it? Why can't I take time?" <laughs> Just okay. analyzing. <laughs> right. So then, what I'd like you to do right now is take a look at the signatures, and is there a difference in the quality of the signature? I mean, I think so. Well, I mean, is your left hand, the, the quality of the writing the same as the right, or is it a little bit different? Yeah, it's different. It's not as, you know, clear or okay. legible. And this is where I get sometimes smart-ass with my patients, and I'll say, you know, you obviously know how to spell your name, you know how to write, and you have a brain. So why is there a difference in the quality of the handwriting? Mm. Process that in session. And so take a stab at it. Uh, what, what, why would you? Why would you think there's a difference in the quality? You have the knowledge. Yeah. Just write, right? Just use the alphabet. Just put your name down. Just do and there it. Was, there was a struggle. So why was there a difference? Do you think? Yeah, I think. Because, I mean, I have no experience. It's not familiar. <laughs> Thank you. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I like. I like being a good student, Evelyn. <laughs> part two just so you know I, I i liked i like when that happens to point that out do you know yeah but you hit it when you don't have as much experience and that's the point i like to make with this and i'll say and that's what intuitive eating is like if you haven't had the experience of listening to your body you might have read the book your therapist might have told you about it your friends might have told you about it it might make a lot of sense 
But if you don't have experience listening to your body, trusting it, in a, in a, and honoring it in a timely manner, then of course it's going to feel awkward. Of course you're going to overthink it. And so it just comes down to experience. Mm. So, and I, I was in a session with a patient where I was feeling really stuck because this was someone who was incredibly successful and felt awful. That why can't I get my act together around eating? There must be something especially wrong with me, mm -hmm. you know? We had great intellectual discussion about it. I thought, I need to show her. How can I show her? And that's, that was the uh, result of that. That's how this practice ended up developing, you know? And so we need to be kind to ourselves while we're... And I, I'm, I'm always fascinated by the self-talk that happens. Mm -hmm. uh, some of my patients will talk out loud about what they're saying and, and the self-consciousness. And it gives me a little insight to how they might be talking about themselves as they're trying new eating experiences. And we have, it's important to have compassion and grace in this. You know, again, it's not pass or fail. And this is brand new to you. Of course, it's, it's puzzling. Of course, you just can't easily figure it out. And this is a journey of one. It's an inside job. Your therapist, your dietitian cannot figure this out for you. They can help you. They can facilitate. But it, intuitive eating ultimately is a practice. We can't just intellectualize what it is and sing kumbaya songs around intuitive eating and down with patriarchy and down with diet culture. It is a practice, you know? Oh, it's such, it's so relieving to have that permission and it opens up so much. Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, it can be terrifying. I've had people say it's terrifying. And when they've had a really troubled relationship with food, um, it's really understandable. So I say that too. It's really understandable you would be scary. Or that you would be scary. You, you would be scared. Right. All these situations that have happened. Um, but we, we got this. This is really workable. It just takes time. And what I say is that, you know, the longer someone's been restricting food or someone was put on a diet at the age of like five, that, that just breaks my heart when I hear these stories. That person doesn't have a frame of reference of any time that they had a healthy, free relationship with eating. They, gave a, they were given a message at a very early age, you are not to be trusted with that body. Or, or what you eat, and so there's more deconstruction that takes place. And so I say that so we can have the space mm. of going at the pace that you need to. And that's truly okay. Everyone has a different pace. And people often ask me, well, how long will it be before I become an intuitive eater? It really depends on your history. Right. It really, really depends. Some people, some people are incredibly ready, and they do just you know, uh, sail through it, it seems like. But these are usually people that haven't dieted very much or and or they've been in a lot of therapy, they've had a lot of insight, and they were just ready. They were what I call humbled into submission. Mm. They just know. They just know that there's just no other way. And But it's different for everybody. Yeah. You know? so it's important not to compare or judge yourself based on what you read other people are doing. Mm. You know, you can read... The cool thing about Instagram, you can read amazing things. Oh my gosh, my life has changed. Yay. And you might be feeling like... My life hasn't changed. Mm. I think life has changed, but that's about it. <laughs> you know, that's okay. It takes time. Yes. Yeah. Your your validation of like the fear that's part of this, I think, yeah. nails most of the frequently asked questions people will DM me. Like, yeah. I want to intuitively, but you know, my doctor said I'm allergic to this, or I can't eat this, or how come all I want to eat is tacos? This is never going to end. And I think to just validate and say it's okay to have this process and one day at a time and listen to your body, and that's also foreign. It is, and I will also say... You know, your taco comment was really interesting because I hear that one a lot too. It's like, oh my gosh, if I had permission to eat whatever I want, I would eat 
candy all day long. I eat donuts all day long and I would never stop. Those kind of comments to me actually reflect the degree of someone's deprivation and the rules they've had around eating that they can't imagine not stopping. If you ask that question of somebody who's already an intuitive eater or they have no rules around eating, it's not a big deal. One of my best case examples, I was working with a woman who uh, had uh, compulsive eating uh, disorder, binge eating disorder, and she grew up in a very appearance-based family, dieting mom, a bunch of sisters, and she dieted all her life and had binge eating disorder. And we were talking about this idea of permission, and she said, you know, it's the damnedest thing. My husband grew up exactly opposite of me. He grew up in a family where all foods were fine. They actually even had a candy junk drawer that they mm. could have with want and to this day if he wants dessert he'll have it he might have a few bites he might eat it all but it's not a big deal he'll eat half a candy bar not a big deal because that's someone who hasn't had that kind of deprivation they know they can always have it so they really you know it's the paradox of permission when you finally have permission you get to ask huh well do i really want it now if i eat it now uh, will I enjoy it now if I have it now? That's a question you get to ask. And then when you finally get to have it, too, with permission, it's like, do I like it? I like the way this tastes. And that's the thing that blows my mind is how many times people eat things and they discover, what's the big deal? And what's been happening in the past is there's so much energy and excitement around the eating. I finally get to have it. I better hurry and eat it now before I change my mind. I better hurry before, you know, something happens, before the next diet drops or whatever. And so they're not tasting. Or guilt adds something to the to the flavor also where you're just not having the experience. Bless you. Um, so those are all different kinds of things that can affect this, this process. And sometimes people discover, yeah, they do really like it, but they're not willing to have it in a way that tastes mediocre. Like, mm -hmm. well, if I can do this whenever I want to, why do I want to eat it now while I'm driving to work and I'm stressed out? I'm going to have this candy when I can relax with a cup of tea or a cup of coffee or, or something like that. And then what you're also left is just with the direct experience of the body. Because something else can also end up happening where you discover, damn, I like these donuts, but... I don't like how my body feels physically mm. after I eat them for a meal. Can that be? And sometimes you're not sure about that. You do it again. It's like, no. And, I, and the funniest thing to me is when patients ask, well, Evelyn, when can I start eating healthy? <laughs> and my answer is, no, anytime you want to. But the real question to me, why is there, what, what's the question behind that question? What are you really asking? And it's actually usually pretty cool. There's a fear underneath that eating healthy means I'm going to go back to dieting or back to restricting. And so what I always look at, what is the intention behind the behavior? And so if someone discovers that when they eat donuts, they don't feel good, if they have it as a meal and they, and they say you know i want to have uh, my other routine breakfast because i want to feel better that's totally fine that's based on their lived experience it's not based on a rule it's based on their own direct experience with that particular food so that's how you ultimately get freedom and the other fear that comes up related to what you said about you know they never stop eating is that they're not going to be healthy but the interesting thing is when we let go of all of this fear and all of this guilt we're left just with the direct experience and eating in a balanced way actually feels good. Yeah. One of my funniest stories ever, I love telling this story. Uh, my son's an adult now, but this is a, I have to give some background to this. This was a time when our relationship was really stressed out because his dad and I were getting a divorce and my mm -hmm. son was very angry at me. That's all I'll say about that. But the reason I'm telling you that detail is this is not a kid who's trying to make points with his mama. So he came home one weekend after spending the weekend with his dad and he was at an amusement park and just ate amusement park food. <laughs> he comes in, mom! I've, I ate just a bunch of junk today. We make me an extra healthy dinner. I want to feel good. <laughs> I just, I love that story because here's my, my rebel son. And by the way, we're all, we're all cool now. Kumbaya. <laughs> but here he was, rebel son, and he wanted to feel good. He wasn't saying this because, you know, he's a dieter. He just knows what eating well feels like, you know? And so... 
these are the kinds of things that, that end up happening, and there's no guilt involved. It's just it is. It is whatever your experience is. This, this is not pass or fail. It's all learning. You get to be yeah. in charge. That's what I love about this. You're in charge of your body. That's the intuitive feedback, and I think that's the magic of this, is your body's going to let you know, like, ooh, how'd that feel, and here's what I want now, and it's just permission. It's just natural at that point. And you can't be the boss of me. That's the most exciting part, I find. You know, when I work with teens, they get very excited about that. Like, you can't tell me what to do. I don't like, no one likes being told what to do, right? Like, you know what? That's actually true. And, and when you're on a diet, you are not asserting your own autonomy. And that's another mm. reason why rules are meant to be broken as well on a deeper level. So, yeah, absolutely. I need you to be my therapist. <laughs> you can, there's, it's not about the food. That's what I love. And I'll, I'll kind of say that, but you're pointing out all this emotional, deeper work and the goings on and. Yes. It's fascinating. You know, I'm lucky because when I'm working with patients with eating disorders, they always have a therapist. And so I'm always working in conjunction with them. So sometimes some of this stuff sounds like therapy. And I'll say I'm, I'm scratching the surface on it, but the real deep root is really cold through the work of a, of a psychotherapist. I, I try and be mindful of my of my scope of practice, you know. But I, I love all of this connection to the deeper things and that people can start asking and getting insights that, oh, what is it that I really need? What is it that I really need? This... This peanut butter chocolate thing isn't tasting good. Why am I eating this? It doesn't taste good. I have permission to eat it. What's going on with me? What do I need to be taking a look at? Yeah. It's, oh, it's incredible. Healing. Yeah. How would you feel about doing kind of a lightning round? Me just throwing out a couple FAQs. Do it. Do it. <laughs> um, what are we doing wrong with intuitive eating on Instagram? shocking to me is I was seeing like all of these people posting before and after pictures which is on their bodies which is really diet culture behavior so there are some people that are hijacking or using uh, it, the words of intuitive eating and actually the words of mindfulness as well uh, and, and plastering it over their, their dieting behavior and to me that's a real shame because it's confusing for other people so that's 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 the one thing I'm. I don't mind. I want to see. I'd rather see the look in your eye, the the life coming back. And I understand that that people are feeling good about their journeys, and it's not. I'm not trying to shame them, but what I want people to recognize is that when you're putting your bodies out there like that, it's giving a message of what a body should look like. Do you know what I mean? And everyone's body is different. We all have a different journey. I'd rather hear more about what did you get back in your life? What 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 changed for you? I think pictures of food are fine. I don't have I don't have an issue with that, but I. You know what drives me bonkers when I read things like, I drew macros with intuitive eating. I do keto. It's like, then that's not intuitive eating. Or I'm seeing sometimes the bodybuilding community, they're doing all of these um, restrictive practices, and then because it's not sustainable, that's the cool thing. They actually acknowledge it's not sustainable. Uh, then they go back to intuitive eating, but that's not intuitive eating either, you know, because you have to respect the body, and it's yeah. not respecting doing these things back and forth. So I, may, I think it makes it really confusing. So that's yeah. that nuts. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for teaching us. Um, what's another big one that I can throw at you? What would you say, like, one to three biggest intuitive eating myths? Oh, my God. Do you know I don't think anyone's ever asked me that question? Biggest myth? <laughs> wow. Can you think of any? I can't think of a myth. I'm, I'm so focused on what intuitive eating is. To say what it's not 
not, it's not, well, okay, it's, it's a misunderstanding, it's not a myth, but it's not about the pursuit of weight loss. Yeah. And that's yeah. a message I try and get through loud and clear, and it's not that uh, we're against weight loss in itself, but if that is your goal front and center, it interferes with the process of intuitive eating, because intuitive eating is about listening to your body, but the moment you start paying attention to numbers on a scale, now you're going external, now it's a problem. And uh, so what your body will end up doing on intuitive eating, it depends on what your body needs. Some people will stay the same, some people will gain weight, some people will lose weight, but it's, it's, it's about a healing process. That can't. That weight loss can't be the focus. It's not the point. It's yeah, regardless yeah, of weight. Yeah, and I've had patients, really insightful patients, that say, "Oh, I feel so guilty because I have a fantasy that I'll lose weight with intuitive eating," and they'll say, "Even though I know I'm not supposed to." <laughs> yeah. And I, what I say to that is, like, "Look, this is not about being perfect. I hear you loud and clear. You have a desire about your body. In diet culture, that's going to happen as long as it's not front and center. But every once in a while, I'm I'm the wet blanket." Because every client who's ever come into my office, that's just part of the that's part of the process. I want to do intuitive eating. Just let me do this one more diet, right? Yeah. So thank you yeah. for that. Yeah, and they'll say, and they'll, they want me to say how their body's going to be, and I'll, I'll tell them this will be an unsatisfying answer. I can't tell you what your body's going to do. Yeah. You know, and you know what I do with some. I've had this happen sometimes where someone is in a dieting mindset and they've consulted me. And they don't want to work with intuitive eating because they want to lose the weight first. And I'll predict what will end up happening. You know, it's like I'd love to help you, but I hear you. I always respect honesty, but my fear is that if you stay on this path of restriction, you're going to end up obsessing about food, and you'll end up having uncontrollable bouts of, of overeating. Yeah. And, oh, that happens so often. And I'm not. I'm not um, psychic. It's what the research shows. It's what I've seen over and over again. And they call call, call me back, and they're crying. I wish I would have listened to you. And mm. I, I always actually feel very good inside 
when someone comes back, because I don't want them to have any shame. I don't judge them because I needed to have one more experience. I worry about them, but I don't. I don't judge them. It's like yeah. you're always back with with open arms. You know, I've just I've been doing this for so long. I know what the other side looks like mm-hmm. on the negative, and I know what the other side looks like on the on the, on the positive. I just want to help Preach. you. Yeah. I want to squeeze in three more questions, even though I have a million. Just three okay. quick ones. Okay. Um, 2019, best way to ditch diet culture. If you had to say, just do one thing, what can folks do? Other than read intuitive eating. Oh, God, that's a nice little plug right there. Oh, my God. I, what I'm going to say is so obvious. Oh, oh I, have, I have a better answer. I see I'm talking in my head already. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I said a better answer. You know what I would do? I would aim for satisfaction in your meals and snacks. Because when you aim for satisfaction, it's pleasurable. When you aim for satisfaction, you it's a really interesting thing. It, it's ultimately not satisfying to undereat because you're hungry an hour later. And it's ultimately not satisfying to overeat. So what would that be like? And most people I have worked with have never been asked that question. Mm. It's a satisfying meal for you. I don't know because they've been on so many diets. I've done what the diet says. So that's the thing I would do. Let's get curious and find out what that is. You know? Yes. Yeah. That answers that answers the second one. So I'll just jump to the last question. Ah, okay. Okay. Uh, we already talked about this in the first the first time, but for the listeners, I'll explain the Mr. Rowe method. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so my partner uh, and husband, we do something funny on Instagram. And uh, we've dubbed it the Mr. Roro method. And he just, we try to decide what to eat. And so we say, what sounds good? Because we want to just figure out what the heck to eat. And so what we do is we'll say something like, hey, what sounds good? I want something that's creamy and salty and smooth. Oh, that's peanut butter. Let's eat peanut butter. And uh, it's a lot of fun and kind of, a way to think about food that takes away, you know, pressure and judgment. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you um, what sounds good to you or to describe your favorite, your favorite food using kind of that texture, temperature, flavor method. Oh my gosh. Oh, cause I've got two. Cause I'm thinking about my lunch I just had, but that's not my favorite food. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm going to take that my lunch because it'll hit on some kinds of things. So my lunch was was hot, which is liquidly, that's the texture, right? Mm-hmm. It was hot, savory liquid. Did you have soup? I did. It was homemade soup. It is awesome. But I have a, I have a, a slight little tweak. I'm hesitant to say this, but I would, I would if you want to upgrade your Mr. Rowe, there's one more question you could ask because there's a question I did. And, and the question was, how do I want to feel when I finish? Because here's mm. the thing. This soup is awesome. I love to make soup. But you know what? I'm working today, and I knew in two hours from then I'm going to be hungry. So I wanted to feel sustained. Mm. And because I feel sustained, I added some toast with jam and butter uh, with that meal. So how do I want to feel when I finish? You know, that might be something that, you know, you can tweak if you wish. I think I think we'll probably add it if you've suggested it. Yeah, <laughs> it helps because then you, you – it. It just gives you more to think about, but I love your Mr. Rowe method because it's looking at food in a pleasurable way, in a very essential way. Uh, 
I appreciate you tuning in and supporting the Therapy Thoughts podcast. If you want to dive deeper into intuitive eating and body image and self-love, head over to tiffanyrow.com. It's the hub of all of my courses, the podcast, my merch, and information about doing counseling and coaching with me. I hope you guys stick around for more. We have lots of exciting interviews and thought leaders coming onto the podcast. So until next time, may you be well.